You're listening to Builder Funnel Radio. This is the Building a Family Business Show with Wes and Brooks Powell. Let's dive in. The Powell family construction business has been around for over 110 years. Over that time, it's evolved and been through four generations of the Powell family. What started as a new construction business building spec homes in the Seattle area evolved to building communities, remodeling, building custom homes, and then getting involved with property management. Today, the business currently owns and operates two retirement and assisted living facilities, several apartment buildings, and does third-party property management in the Seattle area with about 750 total doors under management. Over the last several decades, Wes and Brooks have seen it all when it comes to business evolution, family dynamics in the construction industry. This is the show where I work to extract their knowledge and experiences to help you navigate family dynamics, among other things, in your construction business. Let's dive into the show. Hey guys, did you know that 72% of client unhappiness is directly attributed to a lack of communication during projects? The team over at BuildBook has solved that problem once and for all with a tool that keeps all the conversations and decisions between you, your team, and your clients in one place. Their simple, powerful app helps you create daily logs, schedule and manage your client tasks, keep track of selections, process change orders, and so much more. I met the BuildBook team in Vegas at IBS earlier this year where they were chosen as a finalist for the most innovative construction tool of 2020, which is saying a lot considering how many tools are actually out there. If you're looking to remove the stress from your projects, make your clients happier, and increase your profits, they're offering a special deal to all Builder Funnel Radio listeners. Hit pause right now and text BUILDBOOK to 33777 for a free trial of the software, plus 45% off the first year. There's absolutely no risk to try it, so go ahead and hit pause and text BUILDBOOK to 33777 to take advantage of the trial and score the 45% off. This deal isn't available anywhere else, so I recommend at least trying out the software. All right, let's dive into today's show. Hey guys, welcome back to Building a Family Business here on Builder Funnel Radio. This is episode nine, and today I chat with the guys about owning real estate. So within the Powell family over the last 110 years, um, real estate ownership, land development, building properties has always been part of the the different operations and, and companies that uh, the family has been involved with. And so what we want to do today is break all those down, kind of introduce the concept of using the operation to fuel investment vehicles, but then how to think about managing those investments moving forward, um, long-term versus short-term, that sort of thing. And we definitely get into a little bit later in the conversation, some very specific examples of properties things that have worked well, things have not gone well, and we've had to make adjustments over the years. So hope you like this conversation. Again, it's kind of a a deep dive. We go down a couple of bunny trails, but it's a large topic and we'll plan on breaking it down for you guys. So sit back and relax. Episode nine here on Building a Family Business. Hey, and welcome back to Building a Family Business here on Builder Funnel Radio. Today, I've got my usual crew, Wes and Brooks. How's it going, guys? Hey, it's going well. Great. Cool. And we are just grateful to be talking today because it seems like everybody's using the internet today and it's just causing some problems. So, <laughs> But uh, welcome, everybody. And uh, Wes, what are you reading this week? 
Uh, so I'm still reading the book by Dan Crenshaw, uh, U.S. House of Representatives, former Navy SEAL, uh, and I am on the last chapter, just starting it, and it's called America. So pretty excited to wrap that up. And I, I'd recommend the book for sure. It's uh, Some parts are a little bit repetitive, but the overall message is good and, and worth checking out. Give it, give it the nod at least for checking out. That's good. Yep. Brooks, what are you reading? Or are you still uh, bumming off the lunch meetings? Oh, and, uh, yeah. yeah, no, no. I am actually realized that I was reading another book that I figured that out. So um, it's called The Secret Diary of Hendrik Grun. It's from Denmark, written in 2014. And they actually came out with another book after that called On the Bright Side, you know, The Diary of Hendrik Grun. So the guy's 83 and a quarter. And he lives in Denmark and he lives in a senior, you know, congregate home. And it's just all about his, what's going on with him aging, what it's like to live there and trying to, you know, find something, you know, interesting and purposeful when you're living someplace and everybody's older and people are dying. And, and it's super humorous. They don't, you don't know who the author is. They've never revealed who the author is. The, the publisher won't. So you don't know if it's really this person or it's <laughs> this, but the guy is super funny. And, you know, being that we're in the senior housing business, it's a fun book to, to read and kind of see that perspective. So is it, is it really unclear whether it's fiction or nonfiction, or is it definitely nonfiction and just don't know who the author is? I think it's, well, it's clear. It's, you know, it's not clear. I mean, you could say <laughs> it really isn't. So I guess yeah. the question, though, I mean, from your advanced years, Brooks, does it ring true? Oh, it does absolutely ring true. Yeah. Yeah, or what? What my perception of it is, what's it going to be like when you're 83? Right. <laughs> yeah. so. Cool. We'll make sure to link those those up in the show notes for you guys if you want to check those out. Today we're going to dive into the world of real estate, and we're not going to use this as a debate: stocks versus real estate. But we're going to talk about owning real estate and using that as an investment tool and kind of some of the advantages you gain by being in the construction business. So um, I guess where to begin, large topic, but, you know, Brooks, the, the Powell family business, it seems like owning real estate has always been there kind of from the beginning or pretty early on in some form or another. But where did this all start, you know, in terms of not just operating in the construction space, but owning. Really, really started back, you know, when the, the family business started in 1909, our great grandfather, I mean, he actually built apartments as part of his strategy um, and was involved in rental real estate. And our grandfather built apartments, um, a very simple strategy, which is build single family homes for sale and use the cash flow from that operation to build apartment buildings. And because you're in the construction business, it's you know easier to build apartment buildings. And um, he built you know, a 34 unit, a 38 unit, some commercial buildings. Um, some of those buildings are still in the portfolio today. Um, so really, yeah, baked into the DNA. Um, and you know, for our dad and for us to own and operate real estate as a you know, retirement platform. Yeah, that makes sense. So Wes, why do you think this was so important just as he got going? And, you know, do you, 
I don't, I don't know if you know. Randy, I think there's an important thing or. Yeah. Uh, Cause obviously sure. he kind of started it off, but then it's continued since then. So the, you know, the importance level has maintained throughout the. Yeah. Well, yeah. I think uh, you realized pretty early on, I think Cecil did that, you know, if you're in the home building business or, you know, for a lot of our listeners in the remodeling space, but it's the same concept, which is you're working every day and you're going to get income and it's kind of like a sugar sugar hit, right? I mean, you get a sugar hit, you get some income, and then it's gone. And so what we're really looking for was the long-term burn, you know, so you got to build some assets, something that will feed you when you are no longer able to work or don't wish to work. And so real wealth accumulation really comes around the accumulation of income producing assets. And so your business can have some value to it, but typically you know, for home builders, there isn't a lot of value within the business itself. It just produces income. So I think that's what Cecil realized is like, okay, I'm not going to be able to sell this home building business that I've got. It's producing a good income for me, but what do I invest in? Well, I'm going to invest in the one thing I know about, you know, that, uh, you know, my father-in-law invested in and I'm going to build some apartments. And those are the things that will feed me, um, as I get to be as Brooks mentioned at the top of the podcast, <laughs> 83 and a quarter or whatever, whatever it was. And that, that strategy worked really well for Cecil and it's worked well for our parents and it's worked well for us. And we think it'll work well for the next generations as well. And, you know, we don't want to make a debate about the stock market and real estate, but I think one of the things I look at is if you look at the cap rates for apartment buildings for the last 10, 10 plus years, nationally, it's been about seven, seven and a quarter percent. And if you think of the cap rate as being your interest rate or your rate of return, just like you get on your stocks, um, that's a pretty decent return. And the stock market's returned about that, about six, seven percent on average um, over the last 10 years in the recovery. But I just feel like well-placed real estate is actually more stable than the stock market and it produces income. There's a real tangible value to providing a place for people to live. You can talk to those people, they can talk to you. And you know, there's this direct connection, which I think is really kind of a cool thing as well. Cause you really feel like you're helping versus, you know, investing in some, for, uh, you know, 500, Fortune 500 stock where you don't know anybody I don't know, Brooks. Wait, <laughs> Brooks. Like, looked like you wanted yeah, well, to jump in. Yeah, it's funny because. Uh, yeah. So what's funny is is that because it still is a discussion about you know do you do you believe in real estate versus you believe in stocks because you as soon as you say well we think there's a better re- rate of return in stocks you then start you start to talk about why we like real estate more, and sure. I think <laughs> that's it is, and, and so it does come back to what you're comfortable with. Um, and again, I think it goes back to in the construction business, in the construction space, uh, you have the ability to build, remodel, acquire uh, real estate, and you're in that industry, so then you understand it better. And even if you're remodeling now and you don't have a lot of equity, there you'll see there's opportunities as you just drive around your community where, oh, I could acquire that house fix it up a little bit with my own sweat equity and then rent it. And I can do that again. And that's something you can do within 
the environment of your current operating business, which is different than if you said, hey, I've got to, I've got to come up with $50,000 invested in the stock market to get my return. You can do that with a lot less cash. And certainly that was our experience. We just never had a lot of cash. So it was, it goes back to the power of leverage. When you're starting with very little cash, that's where real estate, I think, gets very powerful. Yeah, and I think if you're yeah, willing to defer that, so as Brooks saying, if you, let's say you build a small apartment building, 15 unit apartment building, if another investor wanted to have you build that apartment building for them, they're gonna have to pay you the margin. And so immediately you have that sweat equity as Brooks was talking about right in your building. And, and that's pretty easy for you because you're in the business. I mean, it's not a big deal for you to build that Absolutely. building. And so it's really, I mean, you know, I remember the first house I built for myself and I sold it, you know, four or five years later and, and doubled, doubled the value of the house and my equity and everything else. And I built it and I, I, mean, I had no money in it. I mean, and so to me, that was a big eye opener for me, my own first personal experience doing that um, versus something that, say, my mom and dad had done or grandparents had done. And Brooks might have had a similar experience on his first house, too. But like, oh, OK, this can work as a asset accumulation strategy for myself and a way to start to build my own net worth. Yeah, and what I'm hearing you guys say, like three kind of big points are coming out of this. One, it's what you know. And so I think typically investments that you know a lot about, whether that's stocks, real estate, or something else, you always have a better chance at getting a higher return yep. because you have that level of expertise. Two is you're putting existing resources you have to use. And so that's your own skills in the trade or your team. Uh, and so you're not having to pay market rate, you know, to go out and have somebody else build it or remodel or do any of those. You can leverage your time. Um, and then the third one was leverage, you know, so if you don't have a lot of cash, then you can still, you know, use that to, to lever up. And so those were, I guess, three things that I think why this strategy has, has worked so well um, over the years for for the family and I know lots of other people invest in real estate as well but I'm curious how do you guys think about structuring that you know so you've got this operation whether it's a building business or remodeling whatever it is and then that's producing income producing a profit do you own those in the same entity other entities and how do you think about transferring you know, how much profit should you transfer over into that sort of investment vehicle? Brooks, you want to maybe kick us off here? Oh, yeah, I have some thoughts about that for sure. The, um, well, you take your operations and, you know, we've talked previously that you want to make sure that your operations are stable. And so you never want to, you know, rob from your operations and make that, you know, that's the, that's the engine that's pumping out the cash. You want to keep it safe and protected. So once you've gotten your reserve set, your cash flow, and you're like, okay, this thing is running, um, then I strongly believe you know the government allows us to create limited liability companies, LLCs. And you create LLCs to own and operate your real estate. And you may there's going to be a transition where in the very beginning, you might make a distribution from your operations company to yourself personally, and then you'd use that money to invest in, let's say you start out with one house. And maybe you buy a house and remodel it and rent it. 
the federal government will allow you to have four single family loans before they call you a professional investor. Um, so you can get you can make four single family loans, uh, non owner occupied rates um, before the the federal government says, oh, you're an investor, and most likely you'll need to go to a community bank for financing. So you can get pretty good financing pretty low down as you're getting started. And then as you start to accumulate more real estate, then you're going to have to work with a community bank um, to get lending. So it's very important as you get started that you have you work on your credit and where are you going to get credit, maybe using your line of credit from your house like we talked about for maybe your business. Maybe you use that also for getting started here. But, you know, you don't want to get stretched too far. You want to make sure your business is running, generating the cash flow you need to live, and then you're looking the next step, which is, okay, how could I get started in real estate? Wes, would you add anything to that? Yeah, I think Brooks captured that pretty well. I think maybe we could have a discussion at some point about leverage because that is a big part of the equation for acquiring real estate. You know, it's pretty hard to save up enough money to to build an entire, you know, uh, single family house for cash and then keep that, uh, which is obviously the, the most fiscally conservative stance that you could take. But most folks that have been in real estate have taken on loans to build the projects that they're going to keep and have in their own portfolio. So Brooks talked about, well, you, you want to be somewhat conservative. And I think everyone's going to have a different risk tolerance as to how much debt they're willing to take on. But you have to kind of think through the scenario. So let's say you do have a, a 10 or a 15 unit building that you have built, you put your sweat equity into it, you built it up, you know, um, you built it yourself and uh, you got a loan. So the loan covered most of the cost. You do wanna make sure that you know exactly how far you can go down in occupancy before you start to go backwards in that uh, operation because that's, Leverage can be a big help and leverage can be a big hurt. And everyone who's been in an upmarket and used leverage, you know, to and borrowing to to grow their portfolio has has been around for any length of time. If they're too over levered, have felt the pain of of being over levered, too much debt, and having trouble making those debt payments when they lose occupancy. So I think we've always taken the approach of we want to use leverage, but we're not going to max out our leverage, we want to have a pretty conservative loan to value or LTV ratio. Oh, speak for yourself. Yeah, <laughs> lever up all the way. Yeah, come on. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe you come to that over time. <laughs> oh, you do, yes. Because there's a so pain life, of delevering. You know, yeah. Life can beat you around pretty good. And that's the thing. <laughs> when, you, when you first get into the business and if you've only been in an upmarket, you go, man, I am a rock star. I think we've talked about the, on this uh, other podcast and I can do no wrong. And so it's very easy to uh, get money from banks, to build projects and get yourself overextended. And then you know, at some point uh, the rooster will, well, how does that phrase go? You know, the, the, the hens will come home to roost or something, but uh, the market goes down. either way. It's pretty painful. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah, it doesn't sound uh, good. <laughs> there's nothing worse no, than yeah. laying wide awake in the, you know, at two o'clock in the morning thinking, Oh, how am I going to make payment on this, this building or this project? Um, because 
you know, all of a sudden I either I haven't been able to fill it as fast as I thought I was going to fill it, or I have lost occupancy for some some reason, or I can't get the rent anymore that I thought I could get. So that would be my caveat is just make sure that you understand what your risk tolerance is and um, don't get yourself over levered so you can't sleep at night. Try to think of what the downside would look like if you've only seen the upside and haven't experienced the downside. Yeah, I think you have to think about the, um, especially it's very easy to kind of get these companies all melded in together and um, really have a good cash flow system and a cost construct cost management system for your construction business. Make sure you understand how that all works and that that's working. And then when you want to invest in real estate, you know, write a distribution check out of that company to yourself personally and contribute that company to an LLC and make that LLC run on its own. It may just be buying one house. And maybe really all you do is you do it in your own name because a lot of banks don't like to lend LLCs to start out with. But keep it totally separate and run a separate checkbook. Um, you see a lot of construction companies where it's just one big pile and you can't tell what's working and what's not working. So you, if things get bad, you spend the first few months trying to figure out, well, what's not working? Is it the investment portfolio that's not working? Is it the construction company that's not working? So make them all stand alone and make them, even if it's just simply a checkbook. When we started, we had a checkbook for nine rentals. And, uh, you know, we just ran those nine rentals, but those rentals had to stand on their own. And if they were short, then the owners had to contribute capital. Um, and that's, that's the way you should run it to make sure you know what's, what's working or not working. I mean, Spence, I know you, you know, dabbled in real estate. I mean, what do you, how does any of this resonate with you? Yeah. A couple of things that you guys were saying. I mean, one, um, the the banks don't like to necessarily lend to uh you know if you're going to put the, put the property in an LLC or it just creates some more challenges around that i know i just went through a refi and i was trying to tr- transfer a property i own personally into an LLC and that was just causing all kinds of problems so i just yep. scrapped it you know and ended up just getting an umbrella and you know we'll we'll figure that out later so i can get the refi done but uh yeah, I think what you guys are saying, you know, in terms of keeping the operations all separate, you know, so you've got your business operation of, you know, remodeling or building, and then I've got my investment operation. But even within all of your investments, as you acquire more properties, you're looking at each one. And is this standalone cash flowing positive or is it, you know, sucking cash away? And, and if you just have it all muddled together, it's really difficult to see what's doing well and what's not doing well. And then, you know, you end up getting into kind of a mess. So yeah, I, I started um, with just a, you know, a townhome and just always had a separate checking account and just keep that one off to the side. And, you know, and then that's helped as, you know, I've moved along from there and, and thinking about just keeping different operations separate one of the things that as we got going down this path, we could, we could definitely carve this out into several podcasts, which we'll plan on doing, but back to the original story within the family, it was, Hey, got this building business and then building uh, apartments on the side as investments. Curious to get your guys' take. How do you decide whether you build 
that investment, whether that's an apartment building or a single family or like buy and rehab and rent, you know, is there a, a school of thought there? Wes, do you have any thoughts on when, when you should build versus buy or does it not really matter? Well, I think um, it really depends on your expertise, right? So if you're in the remodeling space, you're going to probably be much more comfortable going ahead and buying a, an existing property and rehabbing it and using your remodeling expertise to bring that property up to standard and then renting that. So that might be a perfectly great avenue for you um, because we started in the spec building space. For us, it was very easy to say, okay, um, in fact, we did this a number of times. We you know, might have a lot that was not in a great location and go, well, you know what? This lot isn't going to work out as a for sale unit. We just don't think we'll get the margin on it. So let's put that in an LLC and we'll, we'll go ahead and build this and we'll rent it and have a rental property. So that, that was just easier for us because we're very familiar with that process. And kind of, once again, you know, stick, stick to your knitting. If you're a, a builder, then lots of times it's easier to build. If you're a remodeler, it's easier to rehab. Go go with your comfort level and where you can get the most bang for your buck. And I think the one to, things to remember are too, and and definitely we should put some links in here because you know listeners might want to talk more in depth about particular things. And uh, I know Wes and I would both be glad to just talk to them about different ideas because there's you can go a million different ways. Uh, Wes is because Wes brings up a good point, which is if you're in the home building space, you're going to have a lot of different lots that are just not that marketable. And you just say, well, I'm just going to keep that lot and uh, it's paid for and I'll build on it later. We, we did that a ton. Um, and, or maybe it's, it's, we'll build on it now and it's really not going to sell. We're not going to make any money on it. So we'll just make it into a rental and you have low cost into it. Um, you also have to think about if you're, uh, remo- you know, remodeling, you have remodeling space, you can, you'll see a million opportunities to remodel something for not a lot of money and be able to rent it. Uh, something you should think about too is how difficult is it to get permits and where I, where I work? Um, you know, I'm in the Seattle market. It takes years to get permits. I mean, so even so very familiar with new construction, uh, I'd say I'd rather buy a building and fix it than try to go through the entitlement process, which can take three to five years and there's huge amounts of risk. And we built some buildings. Uh, we built a building in 2000. What is it now? 2020. So it's 20 years. We didn't take a distribution out of that building for 18 years. And even now the distribution is not a lot. Uh, but it went from, it was supposed to be a 15 unit building. By the time the city got done with us three years later, it became a 10 unit building and construction costs went up. So, um, you know, we didn't get our, it was a million dollar, million dollar loan and we had to contribute another 200,000 and we didn't get that 200,000 back out for 16 years. And then we were able, values went up, we were able to refi it out and get the 200 back. So the appreciation, sure, the project is tripled in value, but you haven't seen a lot of cash flow. But it's going to be great when I'm 75, you know. Yeah, 83 <laughs> so and a quarter. So that's 83 <laughs> and a quarter, yeah. So, but what, And I think that's that brings up an interesting point, which is um, real estate is tough this way in, in growing entitlements that are required for real estate. And so that can make it challenging. Well, it's a double-edged sword. So 
it makes it challenging for people who don't have experience in the space to get into it, uh, which is a good thing if you're in the space, but it can right. require a lot more time and dollars. And I would say don't be afraid to walk away from a project, even though you maybe what feels like have substantial dollars in it and you're going, but you can kind of see the writing on the wall and um, you're going, man, this isn't feeling that good, but man, I've got all this money invested in it. I can't lose. Walk that. away. Well, you, yeah. have lost, you have lost that money. A dollar spent is a dollar spent. It's gone. So you always have to look at what's going to happen going forward. And, and um, you know, there's a project that uh, got started, um, an apartment project got started right during the downturn, beginning of the downturn, but there was a lot of money invested in it. Um, another, another family member. And, um, they said, Hey, I've got so much invested in this. I'm going. And later it turned out, man should have walked away from that project because as we know, the recession got really, really deep. So yeah, that would just be my advice. Don't be afraid to walk yeah. away from the project. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think it's this interesting. Is Brooks. I'm talking to a friend of mine, a builder friend, and he's working on building an apartment building. And, and, you know, it's just, even if you're in the home building space, if you haven't built apartments, it's a different product. It has different cost structures. It, it's, it's, you just can't take your, oh, it costs me, you know, 150 bucks a foot to build, you know, a nice quality home. And I'll just, I'll change that over to apartments or I'll, they don't, they don't cross over that well. And if you're not in the home building space and in the development space, then, you know, think about, you know, buying existing and remodeling. Uh, you know, we, you can start out with, you know, very easily with a single family home or a duplex or a fourplex, you know, or maybe it's your, it's really tight and you buy a duplex and you move into one side and remodel the other side. Mm -hmm. And then you move into that. And you, I mean, there's a lot of ways to get started or, you you buy your first house while you're running your construction business and you remodel that and then you move out. I mean, if I'd had my druthers because the tax laws allow you to, you know, protect your, you know, your growth in your single family, your personal residence, you know, up to 500,000, you know, I would have built and sold every two years because there's no tax on it. Um, my wife didn't agree with that for some reason. So <laughs> I've only moved twice in 30 years, you know, so, <laughs> but I thought it was a great plan, but it went down in flames, but that's another way to do that. Yeah. I, I yeah. think it's an awesome technique. Start with your own house and move every couple of years. It, it, yep. yeah, your spouse may have some opinions about that and where the kids are going to go to school and all those types of things. And you have to negotiate your way through that. But I think you can make the case that, it's going to have a substantially positive impact on your retirement, you know, your financial security in the future. So definitely a good model. I think the beauty of the beauty, of, yeah, the beauty of, of real estate, it's sweat equity. You can't sweat equity your way into the stock market. I think that's why, you know, now I'm saying I like real estate better than the stock market. Well, I know. We, we, I, I'm glad I prefaced this whole show. with yep. <laughs> We're not going <laughs> to debate which is better. But, you know, obviously we're we're very biased and, uh, you know. Oh, totally biased. Yeah. <laughs> that's okay. Um, yeah. The, the point of this wasn't to convince people one way or the other. Uh, so, <laughs> plus it's our show. Yep. So we can talk about whatever we want. Uh, <laughs> exactly. If you've followed Builder Funnel for even a little bit, you know we're huge believers in the inbound marketing methodology. 
One of the most important phases is the client delight phase. By delighting customers, you turn them into promoters of your business and your brand. The only way to get people to go out of their way to sing your praises is to wow them throughout the process. This is something the guys over at BillBook are helping you do. Better communication leads to better outcomes. And that means communication at every level. Daily logs, client selections, punch lists, and change orders. Today, that communication gets super fragmented between email, text, and phone calls. And inevitably, things fall through the cracks. With BuildBook, everything funnels through one simple app, keeping everyone on the same page and your clients filled with delight. No more digging through texts or random emails looking for client approvals. Just one place to see everything going on with a project. And as a reminder, they're offering a special deal to all Builder Funnel Radio listeners. Hit pause right now and text BUILDBOOK to 33777 for a free trial of the software plus 45% off the first year. All right, let's get back to the show. On that same note, that's kind of what I've done, only not at the every two years pace, but you know, bought into the townhome and then you kind of house hack it. I rented out the basement while I lived in, in one half and then uh, my wife and I bought, you know, another townhome and then we rented out the first, uh, but you get those really good down, low down payments, great interest rates. And so you can work the numbers from a cash flow standpoint a lot easier and uh, get in yep. for a lot less. So if you're getting started and then, you know, we'll, we'll look to, to do the same thing again. If you can do that, then you can continue to get those really good uh, interest rates on those loans and uh, and the low downs. And I think, Brooks, you said you can probably do that up to about four times. And then uh, I think so. It might even yeah. be higher now. So, again, you got to check with your uh, bank. But uh, you know, we had great success with community banks that lend to you based on your relationship. You know, so they'll say, yeah, we can make this work because they're they're keeping their loans. They're not selling them. And uh, and, you know, that's. That can be, they can lend you more money than you should be borrowing. So you have to be aware of what you want to do. And I want to circle back to the, you know, you always have to be taking advantage of your 401k or IRA, things like that, uh, you know, through your construction business, uh, along with what your real estate, you need to do both. And let's say you're, you're getting started in remodeling. You're actually working somewhere else right now. And maybe you're doing remodeling on the side as you're getting that business started. Wherever you work, always have take advantage of the IRAs, the 401ks, get that um, tax benefit. And that's been part of our strategy too, is just you have both. So throwing that in there. So there's a little bit of work in the stock market there. <laughs> yeah, we'll throw the stock market a bone here or there. <laughs> yeah, just a little. We're going to send them a 10% bone. They're not, yeah. getting the, they're not getting 90% of the portfolio. Yeah. Well, let's talk about, you know, you guys have mentioned portfolio a few times and I know, you know, at this point there's different types of properties and, you know, you get into partnerships or different pieces of ownership, you know, how do you guys just generally think about, you know, owning real estate with family? Is there a a good way to set up these structures in terms of, you know, percentage ownership? Because then you get into things like, well, when do you distribute and how much and are we setting stuff aside for improvements? And I know this is a large topic, which again, we'll probably break down in some future podcasts, but Wes, maybe just kind of talk about maybe a general approach to thinking about, hey, as somebody starts building up some property, you know, and they maybe want to start incorporating 
other family members, or maybe people are contributing capital initially to get that first one going, you know, what are some things to think about from the beginning so you don't get into some sticky situations down the road? Sure. Well, I do think that real estate lends itself well to having partners, family, family partners. I think the first question that you have to ask yourself is, do I have a good family relationship now? <laughs> so you, you want to start with a good family relationship because owning real estate together can be very harmonious, but it can certainly add pressures to the relationship. And so if you don't have a good foundation already, whether it's with your you know, uncle or aunt or kids or whoever is going to be involved in this project, it's just best not to do it. So I, I'd start with that. But let's say you do have good family relationships. And I think sharing ownership in projects is a good way to uh, get the net for us. It's been a great way for each generation to get the next generation interested in real estate and uh, have them help in moving that down, down the line. So I would say it's great if the person who has a, they can either contribute money or they could contribute time and effort into, into the project. But I think everyone should have some skin in the game uh, for the project, if at all possible. Sometimes that isn't the case, but um, that can help a little bit because everyone feels better about that. Everyone feels like, hey, I contribute to make this project go. And so I've got a little chunk of it. Um, but in terms of structuring it, one person really has to be in charge. So I would not recommend setting up a 50-50 split on any project. Does not work. Nope. Um, so 100% failure option there. And we've got a couple of those floating around um, in the portfolio. And they're not 100% they're not failures, but, but certainly they are tougher to manage. And they're tougher to manage because over time, people have competing not competing, but uh, varying interests. What would be an example of that? An example of that would be, uh, let's see. So I am um, I'm 35 and my partner is 65. Or I'm 45 and my partner is 75. So very different interests. So the 75-year-old goes, hey, I want to maximize my cash flow out of this project um, because I need it to live on. You know, so and minimize and minimize my risk because I can't rebuild. Right. And and I don't want to do anything, you know, that's going to jeopardize this property. Whereas that younger person may be going, hey, you know what I really like to do is I've got some equity built up in this property. Let's uh, use that to help us spin out and do another project. You know, let's lever up into another another property. Um, hey, I don't need the cash flow out of this. I'd like to, to plow it back into something else um, within the project. So that's the type of things that can happen. And that's just based on age. So that could be partners that get along great, um, but they're just at different life stages. So you have to think about that. And that's usually what happens with real estate. It's different life stages. Because usually it's parents and kids, something like that, or nephews and nieces. Um, so that's one thing to watch out for. That's why one person has to be in charge and uh, then they can make those decisions. But it's helpful if that person that's in charge spends a lot of time trying to balance out everyone's needs within that project and make that that work. 
Brooks, do you have some thoughts? Yeah, yeah. I, well, absolutely. The there's also risk profiles. I think it's also very helpful to uh, take some. You know, like we talked about the disk profile. There's also things you can take about and understand your risk profile. That's if you're going to go into business with people, you know, friends or family. Hey, let's talk about our risk profile. Um, you know, you can answer 20 questions and get a feel for. Oh, this person's very adverse to risk. This person's, you know, high risk. And when you go into business with, you know, your siblings or your parents, you know, you're also going into business with your your partners, your spouses, um, because they're part of that situation. Because typically people have to make a personal guarantee. Um, you know, you're putting your assets at risk, and everyone feels differently about that. Uh, you know, my wife and I have different risk profiles, you know, I'm like, yeah, you know, roll the dice, put it all on red. She's not so much that way. Um, so that's a balance. Um, and then you, so you might have three or four partners in an LLC, but you really have six if everybody has a, a significant other and you have to balance all of that. And yet, as Wes said, if you have a manager of the LLC, uh, they have to manage all those partners, whether they're specifically in the LLC or they're somehow related and, and have impact on it because it does make a difference yeah well as a side note you know those are your best vegas odds putting them all on red or black so yeah <laughs> all on red yeah <laughs> yeah uh so so i'm curious as you're um getting started and in, in thinking about setting up these partnerships you know maybe you guys can share a couple of examples on like a partnership and type of property one that's going really well just from like a management standpoint and some of the high level points and then maybe on the flip side share one that maybe has some challenges um, in terms of how you would have done it differently so people that are getting started can can learn uh wes do you have one in mind that either well, is we do going really well or has some challenges sure yeah we've got um, a number of projects that are going really well but uh we have one that's um you know it's um hundred 50, 170 units or so. And it, um, but the ownership split is, um, you know, our parents own the majority. So they're the controlling partners on that. And then all of the kids who helped with that project have percentage interest in that project as well. So, you know, that example before of everyone helping with the project, in this case, everybody worked on that project it was specifically looked at as, hey, this is a project that everyone can benefit long-term, and this is a long-term forever hold for this project. Um, and the project has gone well and rented up well. It's stayed leased, got you know, really good managers in it. Um, you know, we're all very proud of that, that project. That being said, you know, we've had to define some rules, uh, or rules, not rules, but rules around how much are we going to reinvest in our property? How much are we going to distribute out of the property? So how do we want to manage that property? Um, what, are our, what are our guidelines? Uh, and so those are things that are important to nail down. Those were not things that were nailed down when the project was started. It was like, hey, okay, this is how we'll split up this project. This is how you'll contribute. This is how everyone will contribute to the project. Um, but over time, and this project's been around for quite a while now, uh, we've had to look at what's everyone's view on reinvesting in the property. At what level do we want to do that? And how do we feel about 
distributions and when do we want to take cash out of the property? And that's typically, I would have those discussions up front, even though this project has been very, very successful, but we still had to work through some of those discussions. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, well, go ahead, Brooks. Well, and to add on to that, this property also has development potential mm-hmm. for for additional units. And that goes back to Wes's point is, hey, it, you, you have different ages of different investors and at different risk tolerances. And that does affect, you know, if you know, if you're going to continue to develop or not develop. Um, and so that's another challenge. You know, that's a challenge that typically is further down the road. I mean, we've been involved in this project for 30 years. So that's much over time. If you're within a shorter window, you know, five years or 10 years, probably not going to come up, you know, you know, it'll all, either have all gotten built at once. But when you have a multi-phase project that, that whole question of, oh, when do we keep going or when do we stop, you know, right. does come up. Yeah, especially if it's going to be multi-generational, if it's that sort of a project where it's going to go for a long time and, you know, you're just going to build when, the, when you feel like the, the market is there for, for building onto that project. Um, yeah, it, it's amazing. The timelines stretch out on some of these things <laughs> a lot longer than you'd expect. You think, oh, I'll be done with this project in, in uh, you know, five years. And it makes me think of a project that uh, our father started in 1970 or 68, 69, 70, spent, you know, a lot of time acquiring the land uh, for what was gonna be a senior, uh, senior lifestyle community. And he thought he was going to be in and out in, I don't know, three years. Three know, years, yeah. Three years. And he was in there for, yeah, it was more like yeah, 20. Yeah. 15 yeah. solid, you know. 15 and, solid and then five to, to, yep. to finish it out. So anyway, right. just kind of think that, uh, remind yourself things take longer and what are some of the ramifications of that? Yeah, and as you I were talking you go to your Go for it, Go ahead, Spence. Just to to talk about control, um, you're really that's a, an important thing from a management standpoint, um, and uh, you know just how to to move through projects because projects do need to be moved through, and so there does need to be a manager who you know who has to you know run by consensus, um, but that's important so that you can actually move through a process, and so you can. Determine who the manager, the controlling interest is, you know, maybe based on guarantees, who's guaranteeing projects, uh, maybe who's contributed the most capital. Um, and then there's that's going to just go to a high level of trust. Of, you know, people are investing money and someone's got to run the show. I, I think one of the questions you can always ask your minority investors. So let's say you're asking your kids or your you know, siblings or something to jump in on a project with you. But, you know, be clear. Hey. If you put cash into this project, you have to be very comfortable with the fact that you will never get this money back. You know, you may never get this money back. This project could fail. Um, now, maybe I'm gonna sign on the personal guarantee as I'm telling you this, so I'm gonna take all the risk. Um, so I've got more on the line than maybe my minority partners. Um, so I'm super motivated to make sure it's successful, but they do need to know that things happen, things can go wrong and you know, nothing's guaranteed in this life. So you got to be okay with that. And that's where the risk tolerance risk factors come in and having that conversation. Yeah. And as you guys were talking about the 170 unit and just kind of that longevity and, and taking that longer time frame, 
I think there are a couple of things that I highlight out of that. One is making sure somebody has majority ownership so you don't get kind of stalemated in these 50-50 and you can't decide. And so that can stall out the project or just cause a lot of grief. But the other one was having the, the set of rules. And you said you didn't start with the rules, but it kind of makes sense to me too that these large projects, you maybe start with some set of rules. And I think you maybe would have put some things in place earlier, but part of it, it seems like these projects mature and they change and they get more profitable over time. And so then suddenly you need to revisit the rules or change the rules or kind of check in. Um, and I would imagine that you guys are, are doing that at some cadence or kind of having those conversations. Um, but I, but I think at the beginning, probably you just can't have all those rules because it looks so different in the infant stages. Is that true? I, I no. I think what happens is that you don't know when you first start, maybe you, because you haven't gone through an entire life cycle with a project because real estate is long term, you know, many, many decades. Um, as our dad likes to say, you know, real estate always works out as long as you've got 30 years. So, <laughs> <laughs> or 40. Or 40, yeah. whatever it is. Yeah. I think when you, especially if you come out of the building space and you say you build an apartment building, that it's new. So you're like, oh, it's a new building. And if all you've done is build new stuff, then you're not used to the fact that buildings get old and need repair and need um, so reinvestment. Reinvestment. So the beginning part of the project is really all about, hey, what do I have to put in to get this project leased up and get it working really well? Then you kind of have this middle phase where the building's still fairly new, but it's full and it's performing pretty well. And you're probably building up your reserves. You know, you're trying to stockpile some cash. And then that moves into its next phase where now the building needs to reinvestment, need to go in and refurb units. You know, you got to take care of a lot of things that are starting, you know, you're going to have to put a new roof on it, all those types of things. And so it's good to look across the project, at least across, I would say, at least look at a 30 year time span, you know, for sure going Absolutely. in. Absolutely. But you don't do that typically at the beginning if you don't have that experience. So I just say, think about it that way, even though you haven't been there maybe yet with a project. Well, it is interesting, uh, Wes, you point out that, you know, these long-term, and everyone has different timelines. And some people may say, hey, I'm just going to build and, and hold for 10 years, and I'm going to sell, convert to cash, go to the stock market. So you can look at it as different vehicles. You know, mm -hmm. we're looking at it through the lens of, hey, 100, 100 years. So we're going to hold on to this stuff for a long time. Some people do not look at it that way. They're, they build, hold, create value, sell, convert to the stock market, and then that's and that was the way they created growth and equity. But they're not going to stay in the real estate space. You know, where real estate's in our DNA. You know, we're like we're in real estate. We'll always be in real estate of some kind. Um, so we're that, we really just truly believe in it. Yeah, I think that's a great point because. But even if you're just like, hey, I'm in real estate. There are different strategies within that. So, I mean, so one, you know, you might be going exactly what Brooke said. Well, I'm going to hold this for a while. And, but if I see another opportunity, um, I'm willing to partner with this piece of real estate to go work on this other piece of real estate because I can see better returns, better location, whatever it is. And I'll tell you, really, our strategy has always been, well, we just hold. <laughs> so, you know, we really don't sell. And, um, but that's not always the right strategy. It just has been our, that's kind of our DNA. I, what a good way to, to, if you're getting started and you're like, well, I'm just going to build, you know, I'm going to build my first house and 
and I'm hoping to keep it when I move to my next house. You know, there's so much information which didn't used to be available, but on on the interweb about what does it cost to own and maintain a single family house and how do you plan for maintenance and capital costs and, you know, a new roof. And it's really easy just on a house to just make a small Excel spreadsheet, run it out 30 years and say, gee, how much should I plan to reinvest in this house over each year? And then when are the big hits going to be? You know, when are the appliances going to fail? When is the roof going to fail? When will I have to repaint? And uh, we use that schedule on all of our properties, whether it's a single family house or a big building. And we're always saving for those big hits so that you don't have to write a check. Um, and it's it's a pain to do, but if you just get into the habit of doing that and understanding, I mean, you find most homeowners don't ever think about what what's it going to cost me a year to take care of my house, mm-hmm. and what will it cost me, you know, when I have to do the roof. Um, they're just like, oh, you know, when it comes up, they're like, oh, that's a surprise. I've got to paint my house. Well, you can plan for that and save for that in little buckets. Um, and you just do that with your rentals, and then you never have to write a check when you know, when it comes time because you've left enough money in the accounts to do that work. I think that's just a key, key strategy. Yeah, I think, so Brooks, maybe we could talk a little bit about some of our own parameters because everyone has a different set. So it might be helpful to some people to talk about what our parameters are and people might go, we might get some feedback and say, no, I don't agree with that at all. Or, or yeah, that sounds about right. But we've always, um, we like to have three months operating um, in the checkbook for all your expenses. And then we try to reserve a certain dollar figure per unit for our reserves for fixing things. So we use uh, about $3,000 a unit um, in order just to have a, as a basic reserve for break and fix sort of things. Um, so anything else you want to add on that, Brooks? Or? Yeah, well, we also, that's on apartments on single family. We have, it's a little more organic um, you know, we came to the $3,000 a unit of apartments just based on our experience and then also doing research within the multifamily space and trying to understand how much money you need to have. Um, a lot of commercial buildings, they do it by per square foot and they reserve, you know, X amount per square foot a year. Um, I found that our reserves are much, much higher than anything you'll ever see in the investment world because most people are buying, holding, selling. They're not holding reserves for long-term repairs because they're moving in and out of buildings within, you know, five to 10-year space. Um, on single family, we just, that spreadsheet I just talked about, we just run that out for 30 years and we just put when everything has to be replaced and then we come up with a number and we say, okay, yes, we need 7,500 bucks for each unit for like single family. And that'll, if you have that across your whole portfolio, you'll have enough at any one time because um, one of our other tenants for uh, partnership I've been with uh, my other brother is we never want to write a check personally. So we want the company to have the money. So I never want to write a check back. So I don't want to take it a distribution, spend it on something else or put it in my savings account or, and then have to write it back two years later. So we're trying to plan for don't distribute money. You're going to have to send back. Right. And, that, and that it kind of reduces the stress and it, you know, keeps those maybe we might be heated conversations about, well, gosh, darn it, that roof failed. Why didn't we have the money for it? So <laughs> yeah. That's, yeah. 
Yeah, I think yeah. A, a good way to approach it is start the project, build up your reserves to whatever that level is that Brooks was just talking about, make sure you have that in the bank. And then after that, go ahead and figure out some sort of a distribution and reinvestment strategy. So, you know, you might say, well, we're going to distribute 50% of the cash flow and 50% will continue to put in the bank for repairs and improvements to the property. Um, and I, I would urge folks not to think of real estate as being an annuity. So, you know, that it always produces $5,000 a month or $2,500 a month or $8,000 a month. Um, because that will, if you do that, you'll either uh, take out too much some months or you'll take out too little. You know, it, it's going to flow up and down over time a little bit. But uh, we've seen, had some experience with several projects where, where the owners or the partners looked at it as an annuity. And so that caused them to under-reserve. So um, depending on what was going on in the marketplace. And then that caused longer term problems in terms of, as Brooke said, writing a check later. You know, if you've taken too much out of the project up front, then you're going to have to, you know, you're going to have to pay the piper. It'll come back. You'll have to put the money back in. Yeah, I think that's that's good advice. I think we'll definitely have to do a metrics deep dive because I know you guys break down a lot of things and, it, you know, you've developed this system over many years and, and now it works really well, but there's a lot of little details. So we might have to, to carve out some time to do that. But I guess as we think about wrapping up the conversation for today, do you have any final thoughts or just general recommendations in terms of, again, just going back to the original concept of you've got this operation, you've got existing knowledge, existing resources that you can parlay into some long-term investments that you're not having to actively, you know, work every day as hard on. Brooks, do you have any final final thoughts? Yeah, I would have said, you know, just start. That's always the first thing I always say. Just start. You know, whether it's single family house or buying a fourplex or you know, whatever you know, and and if you're like, I don't have a lot of cash, then, you know, talk to your friends and say, Hey, I want to buy this fourplex and I'll put the sweat equity in and redo it. You put the cash in. I'll manage it, you know, however you set that up. And then I would probably, um, I, my brother, other brother Todd and I managed our own portfolio off and on for years. And I would say, hire somebody else. I mean, obviously we, we have a property management company that, that, that runs now, but you know, that property management company manages my portfolio. I don't manage it personally. And, uh, and I think I make more money, you know, doing that, even though I, I have to pay for it. It's just a better way. So if you're in the remodeling space, new construction, don't set up a property management company. Just work a deal with somebody you know who's in that and let them manage it. And uh, you'll end up making more money. And you're not on call 24-7. You're already busy enough with your own business. So that was a mistake we made that I kept thinking, oh, it'll be cheaper. I'll do it better. And I don't think we ever did. So, you know. I don't know what you think, Wes. <laughs> I'm just laughing. <laughs> I just remember in junior high, <laughs> painting, painting, you know, apartment turns with uh, with mom, you know, <laughs> at ten o'clock at night, and so that was a lot of fun. So I I totally agree with you on uh, on that strategy. But I think 
my final recommendation is first, yeah, I agree with Brooks, just start, you have to start somewhere. So put your toe in the water and get started, um, you know, build those assets, hang on to them. I, I think, you know, get things paid off. Um, as we talked about, everything's a success. You wait 30 years. So once those things pay off for you, they will feed you and your family for a long, long time if you take care of them. And, um, and so I do think, do take care of them, reinvest in your properties, do spend the money on your properties that is needed. Um, and those properties will take care of you. And last but not least, uh, leverage can be a bitch. So, you know, be careful. <laughs> and on that note, we will hit leverage in the future yeah. on another topic <laughs> and uncover why that is the parting words for today. So yeah, thanks guys for joining me and everybody listening. Hopefully this was a good one for you. And if you have questions, we want to dive into this topic a lot deeper in some future episodes. So send us in your questions to radio at builderfunnel.com. We'll flag those down and we can, uh, we can talk about those things and dive a little bit deeper. But thanks again for listening, guys. This is Building a Family Business here on Builder Funnel Radio, and we'll see you next week. Hey guys, I hope you enjoyed that conversation. Again, we bounced around a lot because it's a very large topic. So we'll plan on diving in deeper into some of these, uh, especially the metrics and the details of managing these investments. But as always, let's pull out some takeaways from today's conversation. Uh, item number one, get started. You know, as you're running your operation, it's really tough to create, you know, that, that business as something to sell in the future. And so if you can use the profits and some of the cash flow to reinvest in something uh, where you're building some equity and building a little bit more passive of an income stream, that can be really, really advantageous down the line. So getting started gets you in the game and you can start to build from there. Uh, the second one was think about how you're structuring those first few investments. So again, I liked uh, what the guys talked about in terms of distribute from your operation personally, and then either buy it personally when you're first getting started or set up another entity an LLC and then contribute that capital there. Then of course, if you want to pull in other family members or other investors, you can all contribute that capital at the same time. And then you can go in on that first project, whether it's a build or a buy and fix up, and then you can start to rent that out. So I think those were, you know, a couple of really powerful takeaways. Um, and then I think uh, on the final note from Wes, just be cautious about leverage. Make sure you run the numbers in terms of making sure those properties are going to cash flow and they're not going to be a drain on you from the start. You'll get a little bit disenfranchised with the whole concept and then it can be tough to kind of build on that in the future. So thanks again for listening, guys. Again, if you have feedback on the show, topics you want us to dive into, we love to hear from our listeners. So please send us a note. If you're liking it, you know, just uh, shoot us a quick email, find us on social media. Um, let us know and let us know what we can talk about in the future. Again, email is radio at builderfunnel.com, uh, but chime in on Instagram, chime in on LinkedIn, on Facebook. Let us know what you think and we'll see you next week. Thanks guys. Hey.